Romans chapter 13 in your Bibles, please. Please turn in your Bibles back to the most important book ever written, Romans chapter 13, and we come to the closing verses of this chapter, verses 11 through 14. As you're turning there, I'd like to ask a question. When was the last time that you were up before the dawn? Maybe some of you make a regular practice of getting up before dawn. Sometimes I get up before dawn on accident, uh, just because of insomnia. That happened to me this week. It was a beautiful sunrise. But I bring that up because we as Christians are those who are, spiritually speaking, up before the dawn. There's a great dawn coming to this world. And we are living in the last hour of the night. And we are those who are spiritually awake, spiritually alert, ready for that coming day. Think back to what it would have been like to live before electric lighting. What it was like to be governed by the light of day. When the sun goes down, there's only so much you can do. Lights are off, you have a candle, but how much can you really do by candlelight? You uh, do a few things and you go to sleep. But as the sun is up, you want to be up with the sun. You want to be up working. You want to be ready to go. Not a laggard who is still in bed after the sun is up, but somebody who is up before dawn at the work. And that's what we are to be as Christians. We are to be those who are up and at them before the dawn has even come. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14 will show you exactly what I and Paul are talking about. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Powerful exhortation here at what is the close of the general exhortation of Paul to the church in Rome. The doctrinal part of Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 12, then led into the practice of that doctrine in Romans 13 through 16. Paul has some specific instructions in mind for the church at Rome in verse chapters 14 and 15 before we come to his conclusion. But in chapter 13, he's had general instructions that fall in line with the type of instruction he gave to all the churches. What we read in Romans chapter 13 is not dissimilar from Colossians chapter 3 or Ephesians chapter 5 or any of the letters that Paul writes where he gets into that part where he's telling Christians what the Christian life in general is supposed to look like. He began in Romans chapter 13 talking, excuse me, I, don't, I, I misspoke, not just chapter 13, but Romans chapters 12 and 13 are both full of general instruction. And so he began in Romans chapter 12 with that general appeal based upon the mercies of God. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And that phrase, the mercies of God, it caught up in one short statement 
all of the doctrine that Paul had been teaching in the first 11 chapters of this most important book ever written. But when we come to the end of his general instruction in Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, he's no longer looking back to what Christ has done, but now he's looking forward to what Christ will do. And this is where we live. We as Christians are living in between what Christ has done and what Christ is going to do. And our whole life is defined by Christ. What he's done, what he's going to do. And so I love that, that God has bracketed the exhortations to the church, these general commands, by the, the backward glance and the forward gaze. Let's take a look at the details here. You see our outline for today. Verses 11 and 12, the first part of verse 12, give us this tremendous truth of the forward look. Our forward gaze as Christians is to the dawn of a new day. Some people in our secular world like to talk about being on the right side of history. They have this idea that, that history is going somewhere, that there's a progress, and that you want to make sure that, that you're living in light of that future that is coming. Well, those who are secularists might be misinformed about the future that is coming. We have a sure word from God about the future day that is about to break forth into this world. And you do want to make sure that you are living on the right side of that history. We are those who are living as if the day of Christ has already come. We are those who are awake who are spiritually alert, who are living a life in accordance with this great hope. Gratitude for what Christ has done, hope for what Christ is going to do soon, very soon. Look at verse 11. Besides this, besides this probably refers back to his command to love in chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And he says, besides this, you know the time. So we are to live this Christian life of love because we know what hour it is. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. I love the way the New King James Version phrases this next part of the verse in verse 12. He says, the night is far gone. And, and the King James Version says, the night is far spent. Think about that. The Bible throughout uses this metaphor of night and day, light and darkness. Night and day, light and darkness. And this present time that we live in is a time of darkness. It's a time of night. Why? Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said. He said, I am the light of the world. As long as I am with you, you can walk in the light of day. Night is coming when no man can work. And when the light of the world left the world and went to the Father, the world is plunged back into a time of darkness. Why is this a time of darkness? It's because it's a time where Christ is not in the world. But Christ is coming. And that's going to be the day that God has talked about from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. I love this metaphor of, of the day and the night, the light and the darkness. As I said, we find it throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
Here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we are told that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And this prophetic word is something that we must pay attention to. The wise person pays attention to the prophecies of the Holy Bible because they are a lamp shining in a dark place. This book is the Word of God. It is a lamp shining in a dark place. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He is the light. He is like the sun shining in the sky. But He's not here right now. What do we have in this nighttime? What do we have in this darkness? We've got the Word. We've got the testimony. We've got the prophecies. We've got the Gospels. We've got the writings of Jesus Christ's apostles. We've got the prophets who predicted the coming of Christ. This is what we have of Christ now. And this, when it dwells in your heart, when it dwells in your mind, when it shapes your thinking and your attitudes and your ambitions and goals in life, then it is a shining light enfleshed. You take this word and you plant it into the human soul and it shines. And so we are a lighthouse. We are a place where we are a lampstand shining in the darkness of this nighttime. But keep in mind, all of these metaphors, the lighthouse, the lamp, the light that's shining in a dark place, well, you only need those things because it's nighttime, because it's dark. Do you need your flashlight in the full day? No. The lighthouse is not as important during the day as it is during the night. The ships can see the shoreline. Light is coming. Day is going to dawn. But right now, we pay attention to this lamp shining in a dark place. And we have that lamp within us, within our hearts. And we do this until the day dawns. This is the great hope. This is the forward gaze. This is what the mindset of the Christian is. Prophecy is not something that is reserved for conferences full of Bible nerds. Prophecy is the light. It's the lamp. It's the fuel of the fire of the Christian life. It is not impractical. There is nothing more practical than the promise of the return of Christ. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself. And why is the church so impure? Why is the church so worldly? Why are Christians so full of the same sins as everyone else in the world? It's because they haven't been paying attention to the lamp and they haven't been looking forward to Christ. They don't have this mindset that this is a dark time, but the day is about to break forth. Let's be spiritually alert. Let's live as in the daytime. And the morning star is going to rise in your hearts. Think about that. We have a light of Christ within us now. But it's small and weak compared to what is in our future. I have Christ dwelling in my heart through faith. But the morning star has not yet risen in my heart. There's more for us to experience, to anticipate, to look forward to, to long for. And it motivates, it empowers the Christian life. We'll get to that in our second point of our outline. Another example of this day-night metaphor, powerfully 
Again, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Satan, the world, the flesh is going to try to get us to waver in our conviction, waver in the confession of our hope. But we must hold fast. We must stand firm. We must be strong in this hope. For he who promised is faithful. We haven't put our hope in some human leader. We haven't put our hope in some political movement. We haven't put our hope in some mere ideal or human writing. But we have put our hope in the living God, the one who made the mountains rise with his mighty power, the one who built the skies. And so he is faithful. Let us consider, therefore, how to stir one another up to love and good works. You see, the the hope is what stirs up the love and the good works. Without the hope, the church is powerless. Without the blessed hope, the church fails, falls into sin, and is weak, not knowing where to look for help. The hope is the power. And so we don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, Hebrews says, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. How's your hope? Has your hope been dimmed? Has your hope been discouraged? Have the intellectual attacks against the Bible and the Christian faith made you question whether or not Jesus Christ is really coming again? Has the evil of this present darkness made you fearful and frightful about your future and the future of your children and grandchildren here on this earth? Where is your hope? Are you full of fear and doubt? Or are you filled with conviction and courage? We see that the day is drawing near. This concept is not just a New Testament concept, but the New Testament writers were drawing from the Old Testament prophets in speaking of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is mentioned 19 times exactly by that phrase in the Old Testament although the day is referred to in many other ways besides the day of the Lord. But that technical phrase, 19 times in the Old Testament, five times in the New Testament, but then throughout the Old and New Testament, it's also referred to as the day of wrath, the day that God judges, the day of redemption, the day of Christ, or just that day like we have here. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11 is one of my favorite Old Testament passages about the day that we are waiting the dawn. We are awaiting the dawn of this day when the haughty looks of man shall be brought low. I'm looking forward to that day. And the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And as good as that is, it's not as good as the next part. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In our adult Sunday school today, we were talking about an evil man named Antiochus. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes because he believed that he was a manifestation of God on earth, his God, Zeus. And as that proud, arrogant, self-deifying man sought to destroy the worship of the true living God in Jerusalem, he failed. He brought a lot of suffering, he brought a lot of pain, he, he caused the saints a lot of trouble for a period of time. But it was just a period of time. And then he died. He's replaced by another man, and another man, and another man. And they come along, 
and they're proud and they're boastful and they speak against the God of heaven and they persecute the saints of God, but they all die. And the night is far spent and the day is at hand. The day when the proud looks of man are brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the heart of everyone who loves the Lord and whose heart breaks at the blasphemies of mankind says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. The day of the Lord, that phrase, a good definition. I didn't didn't come up with this definition. The day of the Lord is that time, you look at how it's used throughout the Bible, and the Bible describes the day of the Lord as that time when God will intervene in history in order to vindicate his chosen people, to destroy his enemies, and establish his eternal kingdom. That is the day of the Lord. A huge idea in the Bible. Any pulpit that doesn't talk regularly about the day of the Lord is is unfaithful to the Bible. This is the big idea, one of the biggest ideas that God reiterates for us time and again. And you find it here, In Romans chapter 13, you know the time. You know the hour. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. The day. That's the day of the Lord. You know, the world refers to this day as judgment day. That's the phrase that is common coin in our culture. Some people believe in judgment day and some people don't. But we do. We believe that there is a time when God steps into history in order to vindicate his chosen people, to destroy his enemies, and to establish his kingdom. That's Judgment Day. Judgment Day wasn't yesterday. Judgment Day wasn't the day before that. Judgment Day could be today. It could be tomorrow. And we are to be living in expectation of judgment. Judgment is coming. No one is getting away with anything. No Christian preacher is hiding any sin that's not going to be exposed. No politician is making backroom deals that is not going to be exposed. No abuse is taking place in any family home in this neighborhood or around us that is not going to be exposed and dealt with and judged. The judge is standing right at the door. And that's how we live our lives. In faith, in that truth. That truth is so foundational, so important. Another verse about the the day, Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Paul, there preaching to the Greeks, told them that God has fixed a day. We don't know when that day is, but we know it's closer than it was the day before, as Paul says there in Romans 13. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world, judgment day in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all. People say, well, you know, the world's been going on a long time. How do we know that God's ever going to do anything? How do we know that things are ever going to change? Maybe the atheist progressives are right, and we want to be on their side of history because they're going to win. God has given assurance to all by raising the judge from the dead. Christ is the judge. The judgment day is the day of Christ. And he is standing right at the door, ready to burst into this world at any time. 
You can, you can see the light on the horizon. The sun is about to rise. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. First John. The Apostle John agrees that hope is the fuel for our light. Hope is the fuel of our light. At the same time, John says, this is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, this command to love. Remember Paul was saying, you, you, you love your neighbor as yourself. John is talking about the commandment to love. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you because it's true in him and in you because what's new about Christ's command to love is that we live in the last hour of the night. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. Get the anticipation. Get the hope. The expectation that just flows from the spirit of the apostles as they are borne along by the Holy Spirit in writing Scripture. But not just Paul and John. What about James? You also, brethren, be patient. James saw a lot of evil in his time. He saw a lot of oppression. He saw the rich taking advantage of the weak, using their power in order to secure more power and more money. And, and God, speaking through the Apostle James to those poor Jewish believers, told them, you be patient. Don't be overcome by evil, but be patient. Establish your hearts. Don't let your heart get shaken. Don't let your hope get dimmed. Don't let the fears and the doubts creep in. You have to establish your heart in hope, in expectation, in confidence, waiting for the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. That's what we're waiting for. That's what anchors our life, grounds our perspective. The Christian life without the expectation of the coming of the Lord will go nowhere and do nothing. And notice what he says. It's at hand. It's at hand. Augustine, who I very much appreciate in the Lord, him, him writing several hundred years after James wrote that, and after Paul said that the night is far spent, Augustine, commenting on Paul's words, said, Paul said this, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, yet look how many years have passed since then. Hundreds of years have gone by since Paul said that the day was at hand. And what is the heart of the believer? Does he say, well, maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe it's going to be a long time yet. Probably another thousand years before Christ comes back. No, that's not what Augustine said, although he would have been right. But his heart would have been wrong. Because the heart of the Christian doesn't say maybe a thousand years. The heart of the Christian said, what Paul said was not untrue, writes Augustine. How much more probable is it that the coming of the Lord is near now when there has been such an increase of time towards the end? If it was near in Paul's time, how much closer was it in Augustine's time? And if it was that much closer in Augustine's time, we're there. Now, when Christians live in this expectation and Christ delays long, as he has done from a human perspective, it's easy to fall into that mindset and say, well, you know, maybe if I was living in Augustine's time, I could say we're really close. But it has been another 1,800 years. 
Maybe we should stop with this mindset. Maybe it's time to say, let's just make heaven on earth the best we can. But God doesn't leave us without warning, without protection against that mindset. And so the Apostle Peter wrote, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Peter, prophesying of this age of the church under the power of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus Christ himself had told us that the bridegroom was going to be delayed, that it was going to be much longer than anyone would anticipate, that Paul thought it was near, Augustine thought it was near, and we still hear it then today, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were, from the beginning of creation. So God warns us. Jesus Christ warns us. Go back and read Matthew chapter 25. Jesus' exhortation after he tells us of his second coming and the destruction of Jerusalem and the salvation of Israel. He tells us, stay awake. Stay alert. Don't start to think that it's not going to happen. Don't start to think it's going to be a while. It doesn't really matter what I do today because I've probably got another 40 years of my life and, and if, you know, if I've got sin in my life now, I've got time to work it out and sort it out. Don't fall into that mindset. You know, some preachers, when they're talking about these things, they'll say, well, you don't know when you're going to die. Well, that's true. I could die tomorrow. Most likely I'm not going to die tomorrow. I'm, look at my genes and look at my current health and probably got a good amount of life left in, in front of me. But that's not what Jesus said in Matthew 25. He didn't say, you don't know when you're going to die. He said, you don't know when your Lord is returning. So be ready. Our readiness isn't, well, I might die and I don't want to die in having not grown in sanctification and bearing fruit and pleasing God. I don't want to show up in heaven after my death as somebody who was a failure as a Christian. Jesus said, no, your motivation is, I'm coming. You don't know the hour. You need to be ready. Go back and read Matthew 24 and 25. I don't have time to read it all for you today, right? So, the dawn is near. That's our first point. And what is the application? What is the great therefore that is attached to this tremendous truth in Scripture? Command is, live ready. Live in light of it. Come back to Romans 13. Well, you probably didn't leave because we're just looking at the slides. But Romans chapter 13 continues on with the exhortation. Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Notice the middle of verse 12. So then, so then, the logical connection between the truth that Paul has just proclaimed and what we are supposed to do with that is let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul giving the same basic command here three times. The first one is this contrast between the works of darkness and the armor of light. The Christian life is a casting off and a putting on. A casting off and a putting on. That's the Christian life. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But before we do, let's take a look at how he restates it in the next verse. Verse 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not the way that people in the world walk. Walk is your lifestyle, what characterizes you. And so he doesn't just talk about 
putting off and putting on, but now he's talking about walk this way, don't walk that way. Okay? Same command, just a different metaphor, a restatement of the same command. And then verse 14, he kind of repeats the first metaphor by saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the contrast here isn't the putting off, but instead making no provision for the flesh. So verse 12, 13, and 14 are all the same moral exhortation that is based upon the truth that the day of judgment is near and how we're supposed to live in light of that. That's our second part of our outline today. Now, you get a a little bit of that command presaged in verse 11, where it says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So there's kind of a subtle command there that you're supposed to wake up. Wake up, y'all. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee. The awakened soul is the one that is spiritually awake, spiritually alert. The world is under a sleepy spell. Spiritually, the world is not alert, not awake. They are open to all kinds of evil suggestion, like someone under hypnotism. You know the word hypnotism comes from the word for sleep. It's like you're putting the mind to sleep in the process of hypnotism. It's actually a very fascinating phenomena if you do some study on hypnotism. But here, the Greek word hypnos is the word for sleep. And God says you're not supposed to be asleep. You're supposed to wake up. Don't be hypnotized by this world to be suggestible by this world, but instead be alert and awake to the light of God in Jesus Christ and be living in reality. People who are hypnotized can do some pretty ridiculous things. People who are awake, they act properly. They act according to reality and the situation around them. They're not dreaming. They see everything clearly. That is the command here, okay? Awake from sleep. Don't be like the world in their spiritual drowsiness. The exhortation to live ready in light of the truth of the coming of Judgment Day is again repeated everywhere in the Bible. I just pulled out some of my favorites, but we could go on for an hour with just verses that are repeating exactly what Paul says here. The Word of God brings home emphasis and repetition in the areas where we need it. And so this must be something that we desperately need to be constantly reminded of. Isaiah 56, this is the way that the prophet put it. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. Why? Why should I worry about doing what's right and just? Judgment day. That's why. Judgment day. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Jesus said that you're going to give an account for every word that you've spoken. That what you said in secret, he's going to proclaim on the housetop. Why should you do what's right when when no one's looking and it doesn't seem to make any difference? Salvation is coming. And do you know who salvation is? Jesus. When God says my salvation is coming, he's saying Jesus is coming. And he came... He's coming again. People who were living before the coming of Jesus, they were to live their life in light of his first coming. They didn't know there was going to be two comings. But now we do. 
And we're living our life in God's salvation coming again. Jesus is God's salvation and he's coming. Jesus is the righteousness of God and he is about to be revealed. You know the book of Revelation? An unveiling, a revealing of who. Not what, but who. Jesus Christ. He's the one who opens the seals of the scrolls. He's the one who brings the judgments upon the earth. He's the one who comes back on the white horse with the sword of God coming from his mouth to slay the wicked. He's the one who raises the righteous from the dead. He's the one who builds the kingdom. He's the one who invites the righteous to sit with him on his throne in his heavenly kingdom. God's salvation is coming. God's righteousness will soon be revealed. Live in light of that truth. Luke records the words of Jesus Christ. Watch yourselves. Jesus says to you right now, watch yourself. He knows you're going to be tempted to forget. He knows you're going to be tempted to be lazy. He knows that you are going to be tempted to have your heart weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. The cares of this life, they will weigh down your heart. Watch yourself. If the cares of this life choke out the seed of the Word of God in your heart, then that day will come suddenly like a trap. The day of the Lord is salvation for the righteous, the day of the Lord is fear and dread for the wicked. Same day. Same person that's coming, very different results for the righteous and for the wicked. Jesus' words he says to all, to us here in the church, to those who are sleeping in this morning, watch yourselves, Jesus says. The Gospel of Matthew, which I've referenced, has the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. As I read through the Gospel of Matthew in preparation for preaching Matthew 24 and 25 a few years ago, I came up with this statement for what the Gospel of Matthew is all about. I wanted to summarize the thesis of the Gospel. What is the book's message? And the Gospel of Matthew was written so that you can know that Yeshua, that's the Hebrew name of Jesus, that he is the Messiah of Israel. And that he left us instructions on how to live until the kingdom of God is inaugurated at the end of the age. That's the message. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the king of Israel. He's not here right now. So how are we supposed to live until he comes and receives the kingdom at the end of the age? That's the whole message of the book of Matthew. Turn with me to Colossians. Come with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he's instructing the church about the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ is all you need in order to live the good life. Some people think, well, Christ is good, but you also need man's wisdom. You also need you know, the tried, tested results of modern science or psychology You might also need some medications or some drugs in order to live the good life. But the human spirit does not need anything except Christ in order to thrive. Now, your body needs food, you need clothing, you need a place to live. You have a lot of needs that aren't spiritual. 
But as far as your, your spiritual health goes, Christ is sufficient. In Christ, we have all that we could ever need. And so, Paul, in warning the Colossians about being drawn away by worldly ideas, he points them to Christ. And he doesn't just point them to what Christ has done, but he points them to what Christ is going to do. If the church only has gratitude for forgiveness of sins and the cross of Christ to power its Christian witness, it's got half power. It'll do something. It won't be a total loss. But without the great hope, without the prophecies of Christ's return constantly being set before us, we're missing half the power. Look at the way Paul says it here in Colossians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So the present power of Christ, the present ministry of Christ is the focus of our soul as well. What Christ has done, where Christ is now, what Christ is going to do. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here's that great hope. When he appears you also will appear with him in glory. And now notice verse 5. The therefore, the same logic that he uses in Romans, he uses here. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice the forward look. It continues in verse 6. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Why should you not be sexually immoral? Why should you not be impure? Why should you not enjoy evil desires? Why should you not be covetous and get all that you can? Why not go along with this world into their idolatry and avoid the persecution that they put on you for not worshiping what they worship? Because the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Notice the putting away, the putting to death. That's the same instruction we have in slightly different words in Romans chapter 13. So the general instruction of Paul is the same in Colossians as it is in Romans. Same in Ephesians, same in all of Paul's letters. But again, not just Paul. What about Peter? First Peter, the end of all things is at hand. When he says end, he doesn't mean that the universe is going to cease to exist. The millennial kingdom is on this earth. And then the new heavens and the new earth, that's a a real physical place. So he's not saying the end of all things, meaning like annihilation of everything. No, the goal of all things. All things are moving towards a predetermined purpose. And that goal, that purpose is, is at hand. God is ready to bring in his eternal kingdom. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. See? You're supposed to be self-controlled, sober-minded, because you are expecting the kingdom of God. You're expecting the kingdom of God. Are you? Where do you expect to spend your retirement? I'm not even necessarily expecting a retirement. 
doesn't mean I'm not saving, doesn't mean I don't have plans, but plan A is retirement in the kingdom of God. Plan B, if Christ should delay, is retirement in Nebraska. I'd rather be in the kingdom of God. And we should be expecting it. You should be expecting it. Have you stopped expecting it? Change your thinking. Think like this. Second Peter. Since. Same as therefore. Same idea. The logical connection. Since all these things are to be thus dissolved. How dissolved? The heavens are going to burn with unquenchable fire. The earth and its works are going to be destroyed is what Peter says there in chapter 3. Since everything you see around you, the houses, the cars, the yachts, the office buildings, it's all going to be destroyed. And so, what sort of people ought you to be? How are you supposed to live if you know the future of this world? Knowledge of the future is the most important knowledge as far as being able to benefit yourself. Knowledge of the past is helpful, but if you know the future, you can take some real steps to benefit by that knowledge. You can invest wisely if you know the future. Everyone's looking for the analytics. Who can predict what's going to happen with the stock market? Who's going to predict what's going to happen with cryptocurrency? Who can predict what's going to happen with precious metals? And whoever makes the best prediction makes out the best. All that's temporary. All that's passing away. I have a a 100% prediction for you. Christ is coming. Invest in his kingdom. You will not be sad if you do. You will not be disappointed if you take that financial advice. We're going to talk next week, specifically, what do we put off and what do we put on? Paul lists categories here the sexual sins, the sins of pride and jealousy, and then the contrast with putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get into some specifics next week. Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Lord God, we hear the words of Jesus Christ spoken by his Holy Spirit in our hearts today that he has sent and testified to us about the things that must soon take place. We have heard the words of the one who is the bright morning star. The one whose coming presages the dawn and tells us that the night is over. We look forward to the fulfillment of his promise to us that he will give to us the morning star, that it will arise in our hearts. Lord God, until that day, give us courage and strength to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. For we give you thanks and praise for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do soon and very soon. Amen.